Hi everyone, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Sydney Toll, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Professor Allstott from the Yale Law School, who has received a total of five teaching awards during her time at both Columbia University School of Law and the Yale Law School. Professor Allstott is the author of multiple books, including The Public Option, which is what her discussion, The Public Option Beyond Healthcare, centered around yesterday. Professor Allstott, thank you so much for joining us both yesterday and today. You touched on a lot of important issues yesterday that I would love our listeners at home to hear more about. Thank you, Sydney. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And first, I thought we could maybe talk a little bit about what inspired you to write your book, The Public Option, and if you encountered any unexpected changes of opinion or changes of heart over the course of writing the book. What a great question. So um, what motivated us, so I should mention that uh, my co-author on the book uh, is Ganesh Siddharaman, who is a, a law professor at Vanderbilt and has worked in uh, politics uh, over time. Um, so Ganesh and I were uh, uh, in the wake of the 2016 uh, presidential election, the election of uh, what, who, the man that would become President Trump, um, were just you know, casually hashing over politics and and what the future might look like. And um, uh, we, I don't know how we got on this topic, but we started talking about healthcare. We started talking about the public option in healthcare, which is uh, a provision that wasn't adopted into law, but some people thought and still think is a good idea, uh, as do I, the idea that the government should provide a public option in healthcare. You don't have to take it. You can have private health insurance if you want it, but uh, the public option would provide um, health insurance at an affordable price and uh, uh, with terms that are set by the government rather than private insurance companies. And so we were talking about that and we um, we started thinking about, um, wow, there are actually a lot of public options. We don't think of them that way, but there are a lot of public options around us. The public library is a public option. I talked about that in the talk yesterday. The post office is a public option in the sense that they're government enterprises. They provide an important service at an affordable price, but nobody has to take them or use them. You can use FedEx, a private company, instead of the post office. You can buy your books on Amazon or have a private collection if you want. You don't have to use the the uh, public library. So as we talked, um, we actually started to get more optimistic. Um, we're both we're both progressive leaning people, and so the 2016 presidential election was kind of a, a downer for us. But as we talked about public options, and we realized they're all around us, we also um, started to think about their potential. Right, started to think about their potential to actually extend new and newly important goods and services to uh, to people. So broadband brand, uh, broadband internet, for example, is something that you know. 50 years ago, certainly nobody had and nobody needed. But today, it's really essential for almost anything you want to do in life. Could we, should we think about a public option? And so we ended up writing the book. Uh, and we talk about all kinds of possible public options in higher education, in um, retirement policy, childcare, broadband internet, banking, all kinds of different things. Did we have any changes of opinion or heart as we went through? I don't think so. Although, Sydney, it's interesting because politics changed around us, right? So in 2016, um, uh, 
what would become the progressive movement or the left wing of the Democratic Party, you know, existed, but it was not as powerful as it would actually become by 2020. And so it was really interesting as we were writing about uh, the, the possibilities of public action to watch this wing of the Democratic Party actually um, uh, become more vocal, become more visible, and to listen to their ideas about public action. Thank you. Um, And you mentioned briefly, you touched on the public libraries as a public option. And yesterday in your your discussion, you talked about how public libraries have escaped the target of neoliberalism and being labeled as part of the big bad government. And I was wondering what makes libraries an exception and if you expect them to remain unscathed by criticism? Really interesting um, questions. And it's funny, Sydney, until um, yesterday, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, I, I, I had thought about the fact that they're popular, but I hadn't really interrogated why is it that the public libraries for people don't Uh, take on this aura of government. You know, very few people protest outside the public library saying, we won't pay taxes to support this. Um, And I wonder whether whether the causation is sort of backwards in a way. So the other kind of program where you see this is programs are Social Security and Medicare, obviously much bigger, big federal programs. But uh, there's there's um, almost a sense among some people that Social Security and Medicare aren't government. They're just ours, you know, um, uh, that there's a there's a famous or infamous protest sign uh, that I sort of love because it illustrates this point. There's a, a woman standing uh, at some kind of protest and she's got a sign that says, government hands off our Medicare. <laughs> and I just think that's so illustrative of sort of that, you know, the woman that wrote that sign didn't think of Medicare as the government when in fact it is a huge government program. It costs, um, you know, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars every year. And it is in fact has its terms set by the government. It's administered by the government. But people genuinely, you know, kind of love Medicare. And so that's what I'm sort of speculating on. When people love a public option, do they not think of it as government just because in the United States, government is so unpopular, right? So do we, do we kind of back in, do we, do we have, oh, I forget what you call it, but it's, it's like when you have uh, preference affirming observations, right? So if you hate the government, but you love Medicare, then you're going to assume that Medicare is not the government. So I'm not sure how we take advantage of that dynamic other than by building programs that really work that people like. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And kind of going off of that point, you touched on how post offices were once one of these beloved public options, but have now kind of turned a little troubled because of leadership. And I was hoping you could maybe elaborate a little bit more on why leadership has resulted in negative implications for the Postal Service and it's kind of um, pers- how it's seen by the public. Yeah. So um, a few different things are going on with the post office. Um, I think one long-term trend that uh, the post office and everybody are coming to terms with is how much do we need the post office? You know, in the era of email, in the era of um, texting and cell phones and um, all of that, and even when real estate documents and other things, they're signed electronically now, and certainly the pandemic has pushed us toward electronic stuff, you know, that's 
suggests we don't need the post office. On the other hand, as we've all learned during the pandemic, we really need the post office for our packages. So the post office, I think, is struggling to... Um, assess its business model. You know, how important is first class mail? That used to be a big thing. We used to actually, I'm old enough that um, I used to send letters back and forth with my uh, high school friends when I was in college, right? We would send snail mail. Um, Not something that people really do now. Um, It's largely, uh, uh, the mail uh, is largely junk mail plus packages. So, that's like a big long-term business model thing uh, that we have to think about, you know, and and that actually ties into our uh, discussion of broadband internet. So um, some of the functions that the post office used to serve in terms of connecting people um, now are served by broadband internet. So um, anyway, um, the specific uh, issue with the post office right now. There are a couple of issues. One is that uh, the post office is uh, over underfunded and overstressed. There was an article in the New York Times this morning about uh, the ways in which over time the post office has become understaffed as they have not hired uh, to keep up with the demand for their services. Their trucks apparently are um, wearing out. They're not air conditioned. And so the conditions for postal workers are pretty bad. Um, And at the same time, um, under the Trump uh, leadership, I guess, uh, the, the post office is a independent, uh, semi-independent uh, agency of the government, but it, its leadership is appointed by the president. Um, and so the current postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, uh, has uh, made some changes that um, uh, probably were well, I don't know what his intentions were, but uh, the changes involved uh, cutting staffing, cutting staff overtime. And the result we saw around the election and then following the election has been a slowdown in mail service um, and in package service. So I don't know about you, Sydney, but uh, I order a lot of stuff on Amazon. And before the pandemic and even in the early days of the pandemic, you could get an Amazon package in a couple of days um, or really a package from any other kind of e-commerce. And now it, I'm finding it takes you know a couple of weeks often. So... I think with the, you know, generalizing from all of that, I think that the funding of the public option is really important. I think it's, uh, the post office has been under a lot of pressure to operate like a private company. And if you go to the post office website, actually, they, they kind of trumpet that, like, like we operate just like a private company. I don't think a public option ought to operate like a private company. If private companies could do the job, they ought to do the job, right? If we're, if we have a public option, it's precisely because we think we should put some organizational and, and depending on the subject, financial resources behind making the public option work. So the financial pressure on the post office um, uh, leads to, or at least then justifies things like the slowdown in service that have occurred most recently. So the bigger picture, I think, about the post office is you know, my worry is that we'll destroy a beloved public option by hamstringing it uh, with unrealistic financial uh, constraints and by management that seems um, happy with those constraints and not able or willing to make the case for uh, better financing and really better services. And you mentioned um, Trump's leadership's role in the post office's perhaps downfall, not to say that they're 
and they've had a downfall yet, but with their financial struggles. And so I was wondering, do you expect this to change under President Biden's leadership? Um, I know yesterday you mentioned how President Biden has already made strides in expanding childcare. So I was wondering if you expect the same kind of changes for other public options, such as the post postal service. Yeah, so I hope so. And I read this morning, um, again, I think it was in the New York Times, that the administration is uh, planning to, uh, the post office is governed by a board of directors. And the board of directors, I guess, uh, elects the postmaster general. They appoint the the, uh, postmaster general. And so the Biden administration is going to make several new appointments to this governing board. And the expectation, at least as expressed in this article, was that they will oust Louis DeJoy uh, and will put in a new postmaster. And I'm, I'm hoping that that person will um, really be the face for um, resolving some of these financial issues and also really envisioning how the post office ought to serve as a public option in the 21st century. Um, in the book, we talk about postal banking, which is... Um, an important public option that could um, be run through the Postal Service, but not with its current staffing problems. Yeah, thank you. And while we're on the topic of politics, um, I know yesterday you mentioned that there are a lot of critics that say that who who have said that you're pushing a leftist agenda. Um, And I was wondering, how do you maneuver away from partisanship in discussions around the public option in such a polarized political climate? Yeah, you know, that's, I, I wish, I wish we had a magic recipe. Um, but, you know, I think some people are going to be polarized and are going to reject any call for public action, no matter, no matter what. Right. Um, uh, and and you can't reach those people. But one of the things that we wanted to do in writing the book was to kind of try and reach people by saying this is already a thing that we do. And it's really why the thing being public option, pu- the public option is a thing that we do well beyond healthcare, And we should have a name for it, the public option. And we should recognize that it can actually solve social problems. So, you know, really uncontroversial public options exist, like public parks. I don't think I've heard even the most conservative libertarian person, they might exist, but uh, sort of uh, propose in the political arena that we should uh, sell off all public parks. I don't think that would be very popular. Um, uh, but parks, again, it's it's like we were talking about before. Um, uh, people may not really register that parks are government. Um, They're often local government. Um, Some of them are federal. Um, Think how incredibly popular Yosemite and all of those are. Um, uh, So... So again, the the best that, that, that we thought we could do uh, was to point out the ways in which public options are, have really become very accepted across the ideological spectrum. And then to really point out how life has changed and how public uh, in things like broadband internet or postal banking. Um, by the way, we used to have postal banking in this country. Um, so, you know, it's really kind of a, a back to the future sort of scenario that we're talking about. Um, uh, 
anyway, that's that's kind of how we've handled it. I, I wish I had a magic approach for opening hearts and minds, but I don't. Thank you. I know it's it's very hard. I'm sure everyone wishes there was a way to communicate more effectively across the political spectrum. But um, I know something else you mentioned yesterday was how some critics also point to the history of exclusion that has been present in some public options, um, specifically with racial exclusion. And I was wondering how policymakers can incorporate the concerns of equity in the design and implementation of public options, especially considering the degree of segregation that we still see in American cities and suburbs. Yeah, that's an incredibly important set of issues. Um, uh, and the worry is, uh, so take the, the K-12 public school system just as an example. You know, the public schools in general work pretty well, but but the population for whom they don't work uh, very well is um, particularly disadvantaged urban populations um, where there's a lot of racial and economic segregation. And so, um, unfortunately, the public schools have been designed to map onto and replicate racial segregation and economic segregation. And the result is that you get schools for the most disadvantaged populations that are themselves, the schools are disadvantaged in terms of financing um, and other resources. So the schools, I think, are actually, um, uh, as much as they are a bad example in terms of how they exist now, they're also a good example in terms of how design matters. So, um, you know, when a public option just replicates uh, segregation, um, as the schools too often do, and when uh, it's designed to um, be financed by the very people who are supposed to be served, those are just not good design features, right? So in the public school setting, we could and should and, and can, and some, some places are doing this, think about changing um, the governing structure of public schools so that they don't map on to racially segregated communities. Um, for example, you can have a pie shaped school districts that take a slice of urban and suburban areas that takes some political will because the suburban uh, communities fight you on that. But instead of, in other words, instead of having school districts that are, say, inner city school districts and then suburban school districts, you can design school districts so that they actually include an integrated slice of different populations. And that tends to have really good effects on financing and on um, racial integration. Another approach to improving the design of this public option is to improve financing and to do a number of states, including Connecticut, have started, just started the process of moving away from local property taxes. And that's the what I'm terming not a very good model. Local property taxes basically say that the people that live in the district have to pay for their own schools. Um, uh, and that is a recipe for underfunding urban schools uh, uh, and overfunding or amply funding suburban schools. So um, what they're doing in Connecticut and some other places is to use state level funding so that the suburban, the more wealthy suburban type districts or wealthier towns contribute to the funding of the poorer schools. So that's kind of an extended example, but I think that it illustrates the ways in which public options have to be designed to be conscious of racial and class injustice. 
right? We can't, we can't kind of put on blinders and say, oh, a public option will just operate magically uh, if we use race-neutral terms, right? I mean, of course, we should use race-neutral terms, but we also have to be conscious of the background features of our society that perpetuate racial and class injustice and design the public option in that way. Um, uh, and anyway, I'll stop there, but that's, that's kind of how I think about that. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a very important issue, and I really appreciate your answer to it. Um, and you mentioned a lot in your answer the idea of designing models that work and that effectively kind of incorporate the populations that they're, you know, working for. And I was just wondering if you've seen examples in other countries where public options have done particularly well, and if you think that there's anything specifically we can learn from them to make to design ours better. So models in other countries, you know, um, healthcare certainly springs to mind. Other countries have done a good job of uh, creating um, uh, public option. Uh, Childcare, um, I, I actually am a huge fan of the French system of childcare, which um, uh, it's it's not problem free. You know, no human enterprise is problem free. But basically, in France. Um, uh, Childcare from infancy on up is uh, run as a public option. You know, you don't have to take the public childcare. You can have a private nanny or use grandma, you know, as a babysitter or or, or whatever. But um, uh, in most places, and there there are shortages sometimes. So that's a shortcoming of of having a really popular public option. So in Paris, there are shortcomings of infant uh, spots, for example, and people get on waiting lists when they're pregnant and stuff like that. But basically, the idea of the French system is that you have public child care from infancy on. And so they have um, crash, which are, uh, would translate as cradles, but that's not, you know, literally. Um, crash are um, for the youngest children. So basically birth to age three. Um, and then the uh, école maternelle, uh, uh, mother schools, again, literally translated, but preschools, probably a better translation, um, start at age three on up. And so you have these uh, um, uh, you know, public schools that are um, very, very popular, you know, public child care, public schools that are very, very popular for very young children. And it's very different from the United States, where only now are we beginning to kind of think of four-year-olds as potential uh, students in public schools. For a long time, it's been kindergarten in the United States, age five. And that took a long time. Even kindergarten in the United States is not universally accepted. There are families that don't send their kids. And in most places, you don't have to send your kids to school until they're age six. Um, so um, thinking about a public child care system and watching one that really, really functions, right? You can imagine having conversations about public child care with people in the United States. And if you just dropped them on it cold, they'd probably be like, I don't want some government person taking care of my kid. But in a place where people are used to this idea, they've seen it in operation, they've seen that it's a very high quality, dependable public option. Um, that to me is very inspiring. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I just have one last question for you. Okay. Um, and that's just, you mentioned that there's this long history of the public option and how support has changed over time. And I was just wondering how we could rebuild support that has been lost, um, especially in recent years. 
Yeah, I think that it is going to take having some charismatic and courageous leaders um, who are willing to put out there that there are goods and services that need to be equally and equitably distributed and that it is worth paying taxes to get them. Now, not all public top options actually would require a tax increase. Some of them would not, but some of them would. And, and, and I think having the courage, you know, taxes are such a, such a toxic word in American politics, but um, uh, they shouldn't be. You know, again, to take a comparative approach, um, uh, in other countries, people understand that the taxes they pay buy them something, right? So, um, uh, and 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 so, it, again, I don't have a magic recipe for doing this, but if we could um, get past this rhetoric of tax as just being an absolutely bad word, we can't talk about taxes at all, and instead think about tax as part of a public service agenda, a part of making sure that everybody gets what it is that they need, um, I think that would be a hugely important part of the process. Thank you so much. And um, thank you so much again for joining us yesterday and today. I know I've definitely learned a lot and I'm going to utilize my public library more often now. Um, (laughs) To our listeners at home, thank you so much for tuning in and please join us next week for another episode of Rocky Talk. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.